श्री गौरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाय श्री श्री गोराध माधव की जाय राज गोवर्धन की जाय गौर भक्तबिंद की जाय गौर प्रेमानंदे हरि बो गुड मॉर्निंग अगेन गुड टू बी विद यू ऑल couldn't keep up with me yesterday huh <laughs> so uh, speak a little today from the Govardhan Leela we uh, won't get us carried away as yesterday I'm not thinking it was a long talk <laughs> forgive me for that but um we ended on a very high point of course we we entered into the discussion of the golden leela through the um leela of chaitanya mahaprabhu and and govardhan in relation to chaitanya mahaprabhu there are other things that could be said of course about uh, chaitanya mahaprabhu and govardhan leela but we we took a high road there and uh, we discussed various ways of understanding a verse from the uh, bhagwat in which radha glorifies govardhan that issued forth from his lotus mouth both in the madhya leela when he was at vrindavan and later in puri in the anti leela mm. and um, so as i say we ended on a very high point um but this is the appropriate w- way to begin any discussion on uh Krishna Leela to um do so by way of glorifying Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who is the giver and Krishna Leela is the gift so first the giver and then the gift hmm? and uh of course in, as i often say that uh the sense of the giver carries further than the gift because sometimes the gift may not be that great and still you thank the person and you appreciate the fact that they made the effort and the giver comes to mind and uh, even if the gift if the gift is very good and you keep it and you use it regularly and so forth then at least in my life people give me socks and soap and things like that <laughs> and uh, whenever i use them i think of them hmm? it's just my mind goes there and so so the giver <clears throat> outweighs the gift that's a very interesting concept with regard to krishna and uh, gaur leela because ostensibly as i mentioned gaur is the giver and the gift is the braj leela so chaitanya mahaprabhu's leela is thought to be some type of outreach by which we come in touch with krishna leela and have uh, access to that and certainly that's true mm-hmm. but properly understood it's not that uh, the giver is forgotten as we enter into krishna leela because as we know as deep as you can go into the krishna leela the, the zenith the high point the apex of krishna leela as depicted in the bhagavatam is in the rasa panchajai the five chapters dealing with the um madhuri leela <clears throat> and there deep inside is the genesis of chaitanya mahaprabhu and the encore leela of gorlila in which krishna tries to remedy 
the shortfalling, the shortcomings of, of Krishna Lila in terms of it facilitating the tasting of love that this Rasaraj love connoisseur is all about. He found some problems there that that he saw that Radha's love exceeded in her taste anything that he had experience of. So he was driven by this to try to experience that himself. And for that, another Leela was required. Hmm? And um, and the roles are reversed. As Krishna, the Ashrai Alambana, the object of love, tried to become the, the bearer of that love and experience himself from her perspective and so forth. So... From Gaur Leela we enter to Krishna Leela, and from Krishna Leela, we don't forget the giver. Indeed, we find him right there in the deepest part of Krishna Leela. And finally, suddenly we find ourselves back in, in Gaur Leela. <clears throat> so, um, we started out on the right foot, and we ended in our discussion last, yes, yesterday afternoon, as it turned out, um, <laughs> on a on a high point, and this was Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's chanting of the verse from Venu Gita in which Radha glorifies Govardhan, and in the spirit of the the um, the uh, the Baba of the, the that the Goswamis embodied of Radha, Radha Dasyam, and um, showing for a moment, at least in a context of context of his Leela, how the jivas can come as close as possible to experiencing what he himself came to experience, the bhav, the prema of, of Radha. There, Mahapu explained that in his samadhi, in his trance, hmm, resulting from chanting this verse, he saw himself in the Leela, he saw himself at Govardhan, and he saw Radha and Krishna enter into a cave assisted by various gopis and those gopis engaged him in a, in a serving in a dasi capacity hmm? so as we heard from Ravana Das Goswami the, these dasis of Radha they don't even want to be her friend they want to be her her servant hmm? servant of the servant servant something like this so he was asked by them to bring some flowers and he showed himself to have be experienced this assisting role. Not that he was um, in the role of Radha, which he does step into, hmm? ultimately, which we cannot. But he showed himself in a separate role, which indicates the role or the the, the way, the the access point, if you will, for sadhakas and Gaudiya Vaishnavism to uh, reach this height, if you will. Of the uh, welcome. Do you, would you need like a chair? Maybe. <laughs> okay, we'll arrange that for you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you yeah. So that is uh, one of the windows of opportunity that Gaudiya Vaishnavism affords us, as we discussed. The other being various forms of sakirasa, as a result of Nityananda Prabhu playing such a prominent role in the. Uh, in the Leela. And so, from a very kind of well, high theological point, you know, there's a general inquiry into a religious inquiry, and then there's a spiritual inquiry, which involves um, not 
as religion does, how to be a, a human being in consideration of uh, the divine, but further from religious orientation to a spiritual orientation, how to understand the difference between consciousness and matter, and the fact that I'm not a human being, but I'm an atma, if you will. I'm consciousness, not matter. So that's a higher inquiry. And from there, the inquiry in our tradition increases further hmm, from inquiring into, into, into the difference between matter and consciousness to inquiring deeply into the nature of consciousness. So from Dharma Jignasu, inquiry about religion, how to color my human life with a religious shade, if you will, and all the important events of human life, birth, childbirth, and and um, marriage, and birth again, <laughs> another birth, and grandchildren, and all these type of events that we celebrate in human society. Religious, religious life seems seeks to connect all those with the divine in some way, and and so forth. So, anyway, as I say, from Dharma Jignasu, inquiry into how to be religious, to Brahma Jignasu, inquiry into how to be spiritual. This is a popular idea these days, that I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. You might have heard that kind of expression. (coughs) But um, the inquiry, the common inquiry into being spiritual rather than religious, uh, really... um, to be meaningful, centers on the difference between consciousness and matter, as I say. And matter and consciousness are so different that um, that um, it, matter being composed of things and consciousness not being a thing, and our orientation in relation to things... Uh, makes it such that it's difficult to explain consciousness, which is there's no thing like it. So we generally define things by way of comparing them to other things, but there's nothing in the world that compares to consciousness. That The non-experiencing matter is infinitely different from the experiential nature of consciousness. They're really very, very... I say that's an infinite... Uh, uh, difference, if you will. And so, in one sense, the inquiry into consciousness leaves one speechless. Therefore, it is thought to be ineffable. Um, um, And often we speak about it in terms of what it's not. Neti neti is a famous statement of the Upanishad. It's not this, it's not that. It's like, I'm not American, I'm not Indian, I'm not Hindu or Catholic or man or woman, I'm none of these things of the world. I'm something that's not a thing, I'm consciousness. Mm-hmm. But what is consciousness? That is a, then, uh, is there any language for that, if you will? Mm-hmm. And what are its possibilities? Or is, only, is it only something that we can define negatively? But it's not this, and it's not that. Um, this is a, an interesting theological question. And... Uh, in, in our tradition, of course, we, we think there, there are answers to that. And um, so in, in, a, in a very basic sense, the idea is that movement in this world has repercussions. Hmm? 
moving in this world according to our identification with matter, where we think I'm an American, or we've identified I'm a woman, or a man, or whatever it may be, when I'm really an atma, a soul, it's not the best translation, but um, we're not an atma, a unit of consciousness, and in a, in a changing dresses, if you will. Hmm? Um, and and so to to pursue one of those roles that we find ourselves in and so forth, this is a struggle because it can't be uh, sustained. Hmm? Our sense of womanhood, manhood, Americanism, whatever, it cannot be uh, sustained. And so it's a struggle. And... Um, and so the world is at war, if you will. <laughs> and um, and we're involved in it. We have to take in order to um, to live, so to speak, in that sense of self. And so so the, the uh, to use a, a popular term that's kind of a Darwinian, uh, you know, struggle for existence we find ourselves in to maintain our sense of self and and, and so um, <clears throat> this kind of movement is what we in Hinduism we refer to as karma so that because it's a movement of taking then um, from the natural environment the natural environment seeks to be paid back so to speak so from when we take then we owe and as they say, off to work you go. So, um, uh, so the karma is kind of a obligatory work, if you will, that arises from our identification with a passing thing that we don't realize is passing or don't want to admit is passing because of our identification with it. And even though we know hmm, the death rate is still. Well, it's still 100%, isn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> even though we know it, we, we're in denial of it, so to speak, and we live as if it's not happening to... It's happening around us, we hear about it, sometimes we have empathy if it's close enough to us, and, but it doesn't really pertain to us. We keep escaping it, it seems, and so maybe, you know, maybe, we, we, maybe we'll, you know, not meet with that kind of fate. Of course, we know that's not, not, not true, and... Uh, we're not ready to invest in any promissory note that we could freeze our brains and some bodies and come back to them and so forth. So we know, but we don't know. Hmm? And uh, it might be thought that to, to know and to be preoccupied with it would be a, a kind of a morbid way of leading one's life, but uh, not necessarily so, because... To understand dying is to understand living. Hmm? These two things are like two sides of the same coin. Hmm? And so there is a way of um, of ending the death problem, hmm? which is a problem only for a certain reason. It's a problem because we've identified with something that we cannot maintain. And if we learn to to not identify with it as you, uh, uh, even while functioning in relation to it, that's what spiritual practice is about, then um, we can end attachments 
and therefore the change that death is is not a problem because I'm not attached to anything that's not going to remain. So it's a it's a philosophical um, and then a p- application of philosophy that uh, turns into a solution to death. Not that the biological organism won't die, but the fact that it is merely a biological organism and life is not biological. Consciousness is not a biological in its uh, uh, makeup. Hmm? Um, is the idea. So, to end the struggle for existence, and uh, this is what spiritual life is about, in a sense, and and to be victorious, if you will, in the in the struggle by um, kind of a survival of the kind kindest uh, type of uh, approach to going about it in the very uh, backwards way, it would seem. Um, and my point here is that in in, 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 if we are successful in that, hmm, then we transcend the the kind of the, the movements of material existence that, in a sense, are the way I'm speaking of it are kind of meaningless. We are not a body, mind complex, but we're identified with it in its demands and so forth, and laboring to meet them and so forth, and. Um, Slaving uh, accordingly under such oppression, and um, and so, if we are to, in a thoughtful way, in a, in a yogic sensibility, in a meaningful way, with knowledge, detach from that and so forth, then that will bring some peace. Obviously, hmm? I'm running around at the demands of my mind and senses, which are in conflict with one another, even. The belly demands to eat, and the tongue says, also too, and at some point the belly says enough, but the tongue says more. And so they don't even agree with one another. So our masters are, you know, at at odds with one another. So what is our position going to be as, as their servitor? So problematic it is. And... And to so to get to become free from such masters, if you will, uh, arguably makes for a peaceful life. Therefore, the uh, the, the, the Sanskrit phrase "shanti, shanti, shanti." Ah, oh, relief! I've been chased by my mind and senses, and I've entered a door and closed it behind them and locked it. And ah, oh, some relief. So to sit peacefully. And to understand and experience that consciousness is different from matter, that is a huge step. It's such a big step that there's like, what more could be said than this? As I said, the difference between consciousness and matter is infinite. Hmm? So, wow, I've arrived in this as, as a, uh, I've understood myself to be a member of the subjective world rather than a member of the objective world. I'm a unit of consciousness. Hmm? where all meaning and value uh, is, is found. I'm a unit of that. I've entered into the valuable world, the meaningful world. The objective world only has meaning as much as we give meaning to it. Hmm? So, it's almost like um, such an ex- a, a transformation, such a change, so traumatic that you are meant. You are rendered silent. Hmm? I am. 
I'm not this, I'm not that, all things which will perish. I am, I will never perish. And it's, it's you can imagine, it'd be kind of joyful compared to the life in which we presently experience is a struggle at, at all points, really. The mind is constantly trying to figure out how to do it better and get more and avoid this and that and so on and so forth. So a big um, uh, sense of relief and awe. Um, now, this is what I'm saying, that that the uh, in contemporary spirituality, this is, uh, as far as ego-effacing traditions go, hmm, which really have merit, um, and spiritual substance, to arrive at consciousness, and I am consciousness rather than matter, is the is 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 um, renders one silent, and there's nothing more to be said. Hmm? And and we've arrived at, a, at an underlying unity that we all share in, hmm? and we become freed from the differences that we've created, the dualities of your good with my bad, my happy is your sad, your hot is my cold, and all the problems that arise from this. But the question, the pressing question that Chaitanya Dev was, uh, was preoccupied with, in a sense, is, is there anything, what goes from there? Where do we go from there? Do we sit forever in peace and silence and quietude and, and, uh, and so forth? Um, that, he thought, is a doctrine of knowledge, but what about love? Do I just love to exist? Is that it? Or is there a possibility of existing in a meaningful way with the purpose of loving? To love to exist or to exist to love? So when he thought about existing to love, then he thought, hmm, there must be movement within the subjective world. Hmm? There must be movement that, that if we were to try to depict it in art or talk about it in literature or to celebrate it in song could only be done by way of making comparison to the kind of movements that were problematic in ordinary life, that we are being... Uh, the variety that, that is, der- is derived from the mind and the senses that, as I said, makes something good for you, bad for me, happy for me, sad for you, and so forth. The movement that's uh, coming from such uh, limited uh, perception of the nature of being that causes a variety that's a false variety, and the movement is is uh, is meaningless in a sense. It's circular. It's not taking us anywhere uh, progressively hmm? in terms of what we are and our prospect is and so forth. But hmm, it's said that man and woman are made in the image of Radha and Krishna. <laughs> Elaborate a little bit there. And so uh, the movement of this world hmm, is thought to be a shadow of the kind of movement that's possible in the subjective world where there can be form that's not a limitation as our form is here but form that enhances and facilitates just like if love has a, love has a shape hmm? let's take an artisan if an artist has a, 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 an idea a feeling hmm? we can only take advantage of it if it takes a shape on the canvas or a musician or the author hmm? And so the idea is that, that a, a doctrine of Vedanta, of love, 
has to have a form, shape, prem rupa, hmm? shape of love. And this is this is a trans spatial space, if you will. I know that's a hard one to get your head around, but a trans-temporal time. Let's give an example of trans-temporal time. Trans-temporal time is, is a kind of time that's beyond time as we know it, which involves beginnings and endings. Hmm? So it, there's, that's not all that time involves. Time involves, time involves, in our experience, beginnings and ends, but it also involves sequence hmm? for there to be movement. So transtemporal time has sequence. So there can be movement, but there's no beginning or end. Hmm? And shape, trans transpatial shape. Hmm? Really, matter has shape because we shape it. This is a tent, is it? I mean, it's just our, that's our idea. It's a tent. It's really just some cloth and looks like some aluminum or something like that, and some rope and whatever they're made out of and all those things, and some conscious being has put them together in a certain way and given a shape to it. So it's consciousness that gives shape to the ingredients that make up matter, whatever they are. Hmm? And that's debatable, in, uh, I suppose, in science as well. But um, and So consciousness reposed on itself, so to speak, hmm? can give rise to shape. These would be the shape, the form that love takes. So there's a trans temporal time and a transpatial space or realm. Hmm? After all, the subjective world is the real world. Hmm? That's an interesting point. We, we want to think if it's real, then it should be verified objectively. <laughs> yeah. We'll get into that, but I wanted to begin the discussion with this short kind of overview because what we're going to be talking about here is Leela and a particular Leela. Leela means play and Leela uh, play implies obviously movement and form and so forth and uh, so a Leela from the text of the Bhagwat, for example we're going to discuss is a discussion of transtemporal and transpatial movement uh, that constitutes the shape that love takes in the subjective world. Leela and karma are at two ends of the spectrum. Karma is movement that's troublesome. The more we take from the environment to maintain a dying affair, the more we owe. And we have to come back and die again and take birth again and die again and so forth is the idea. So if we to get out of this kind of in arithmetic or mathematical type of a metaphor, we're in negative numbers. The more we take, the more we go down. Negative one, negative two, negative three. This is karma. If we are to cease from that and become peaceful, we come to zero. Now zero is full compared to negative numbers. Hmm? So many people talk about spiritual life as being emptiness. Hmm? Um, Again, quietude, no movement, peace. So zero has a positive connotation in relation to negative numbers. But what we're doing now is we're going into positive numbers. That's very interesting. Hmm? Um, 
And that kind of movement is called lila. So where karmic movement is obligatory, because it's you owe, therefore you have to struggle and repay. You've taken, hmm? and now you owe. So you're you're kind of stuck in this cycle. Lila is another kind of movement. If we stop the karmic movement, we can become peaceful. We can become still. If we stop taking, then nobody's going to chase us. Nobody's going to be after us. We don't owe anything. Not taking is kind of half the face of loving. Not taking is included in loving. But loving is more than just not taking. Hmm? So when we speak of loving in, in transcendence, we're talking about now positive numbers. That's a very interesting concept. Hmm? And so there's movement in the subjective world. This movement is not movement out of necessity, hmm? not out of a lacking, some kind of shortcoming that I feel in material life because I'm consciousness, I'm not matter, but I somehow identified with matter and therefore I'm feeling empty or missing something. And I think the solution is to add more material things on hmm? and then, that, then I'll have more, but it's never enough because it, it doesn't really touch what we are full in ourselves, so to speak. Hmm? And so, the movement for acquisition hmm, is just kind of taking us down and binding us more to material existence. And the peace that arises out of not um, taking and acquiring, hmm, this is a genuine spiritual position. Therefore, some philosophers argue that, well, if you don't want, if you have no want, then there is no movement. Hmm? As soon as we want, we've got a problem. <laughs> we've got to move. We've got to, okay, we've got to get busy to do that and so forth. We may, the labor of pursuing our wants may not seem a burden because we're attached to the wants so much. Hmm? But the fruits of our wants are never uh, are not capable of fulfilling our sense of necessity. Our sense of necessity is is to be ourself, the fullness that we are, rather than think that by adding things on a lot of things. So, so that movement of karma is one thing. The stillness to be free from karma that is categorically different. And lila, then here you have the karma. Here you have the, this this like obligatory movement. The struggle here, here, and you have zero peace, no movement, no taking, hmm? and now you have another kind of movement. That movement is a movement that's not driven by a sense of lacking, but lacking something, but out of sense of fullness. I'm so full that I have to move and uh, celebrate my fullness, hmm? even share it which is what we do in love, when we give. Um, so the depictions, for example, of Krishna hmm, in uh, with form and movement and the stories and so forth, these are all approximations of what we call lila, hmm, as much as they lend themselves to words um, and, and so forth. We, we, they've been written about, they've been depicted as in art and, uh, and, and, and 
music and drama and so forth for centuries and centuries and centuries um, in India. And so we're drawing on one of those leelas that uh, is on our particular tradition's calendar day here, and that is the Govardhan leela. We talked a little bit about it yesterday. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the leela itself. We're going to try to draw some philosophical points from it that will help us to get a philosophical foundation from which there we have the prospect of entering into that leela, of, of un, un, understanding the difference between ourself and matter, and then the prospect of ourself. Hmm? I want to say one thing before we go further in this regard, that the self is a unit of being, knowing, and loving. The Sanskrit term sat, chit, ananda, of course, is what I'm referring to. So sat means that we exist, we don't transform like material things do. They're born, they, they, they dwindle, they pass away, they're here today, they're gone tomorrow. Chit means that we're cognizant, we're, we're, we're aware, we're luminous. Hmm? Um, nothing can light us up, so to speak. We are the light of the world. Hmm? Um, without us, it would all go dark. Hmm? So, uh, chit and then ananda. Ananda means bliss, ananda means love. So we have a capacity for loving. The, the, the self is joyful by nature. Hmm? But atmananda the joy of the self, and bhakti-ananda, the joy derived from bhakti, they are different. Hmm? It's very easy to understand. You can love yourself and feel pretty content, but if you could love another hmm, who would love you, then that would enhance your loving capacity. Hmm? So, in bhakti, bhakti is a loving yoga, the yoga of loving, so, in order for there to be loving, and the loving to be wise, our love now is not often very wise, because we don't repose our loving capacity in things that will endure, and meanwhile we endure, so it's problematic. Hmm? So, if we are to love and, and be blissful in the full sense of the term, then a consciousness, significant consciousness other, so to speak, is, is required. So we, in our form of Vedanta, we see that the unit of consciousness that we are, the Atma, is, so to speak, a, a, fi- a spark of the fire of consciousness. And that source we can have a union with, hmm, through bhakti, that is dynamic in shape and in nature. That means to say, the union doesn't cancel out me and my source to a zero, but it's a union of love, just like if you and I fall in love, then you and I are now we. Love is a very peculiar thing. It transcends reason, hmm? obviously. How can two become one and remain two at the same time? Don't think about it, but that's what love is about. Two become one, and they remain two. Hmm? So, this is our idea in Vedanta. We will enter into a relationship with our source. Hmm? We become one in, in desire and purpose. Just like if I love you, I, I embrace your desires. They become my desires. And then, conversely, mine become yours. So, someone's always working to fulfill your desires and you're always working to fulfill their desires. Something like that. This is the labor of love. So, this is the pursuit, this is the ideal 
in our tradition of Vedanta. Hmm? Not just to become peaceful, but to become troubled by love. <laughs> it's a trouble that you won't, you know, want to give up, something like that. Hmm? So that so there's movement and there's variety and the Leela moves, uh, of Krishna moves in different ways and the figures in the Leela, they are all thought to be uh, uh, beings, yogic beings that have transcended the karmic life and gone beyond the zero, the fullness of zero, to enter into this play. Um, the, the, the text here is interesting and it's a good good entry point that Leela is the Govardhan Leela, Govardhan. Go means cow and Vardhan means to increase. So we'll explain it a little bit, but there's a nice verse here, the second verse from the whole, it covers three chapters of the Bhagavatam, which is the, the sequel to the Gita. Tad abhigno pi bhagavan sarvatma sarvadarshanaha. Prashrayan banato prichad vidthananda purogaman. This is a very, this is the really gets to the heart of the task of the, the, the speaker of the text here, whose task is to speak about this plane of Leela and the charm and the beauty of love and transcendence um, in its fullest expression, where the, <laughs> where the, the, the infinite, hmm, takes on a finite-like appearance in order for there to be intimacy. If I, as a finite soul, come in proximity of the infinite, how will I feel? I will feel infinitely finite. <laughs> oh my God, I will say. Hmm? So, this is a problem hmm? for God. Hmm? In the pen, through the pen of Krishna Das Kaviraj Goswami, God expresses a problem. He says, everybody worships me with awe and reverence. I'm alone up here on a throne. Hmm? And nobody, they, they like me kind of, you know. They get close to me and Om Narayana and so forth. Um, um, but in, in, they don't really kind of know me as I am. Hmm? If I was to act as I am, they would think I'm just like them, something like that. So, in order for there to be intimacy, two types of love, majestic love of God or reverential love of God and intimate love of God. In order for the intimate love of God to be possible, the Godhead has to take on a finite-like appearance. Hmm? If I was to say to you, I'm God, and you believed me, I'm not, but and you believed me, you, you would say, oh my God, right? and you would go, oh. So to avoid that, that there might be a real loving union between ourselves and God in the same way that we have loving unions as superficial as they are uh, with one another. We love one another as friends, for example, and we don't even say thank you because that will create a distance. It goes without saying. Hmm? We're on the same page, yeah, of course. Hmm? Or as you love your children, parental love, or uh, romantic love. These are very different than we, how we think of love of God. That's a different thing. Hmm? But um, here we find the same kind of loving tendencies that, that really are the full palette of loving possibilities in relation to our source. Hmm? 
in Krishna Lila. So the author here, the speaker, he's trying to explain this concept at, at the onset here of this Lila. And he says, Tat abhigno pi Bhagavan sarvatma sarvadarshana. He says, he's speaking about Krishna. He says that Krishna is sarvatma, sarvadarshana. Hmm. Sarvatma means sarva atma. Sarva means all atma means all of us, all atmas. He says, he knows all atmas. So he's saying he's omniscient. Hmm? Omniscient. God is omniscient. Krishna is the name for God here, and a particular figure in the Hindu you know, world of gods and goddesses, of which there are many. He's the one that has nothing to do. Hmm? Always playing, only. Hmm? Others have are depicted in different ways as powerful with different weapons and 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 many heads and many hands and riding on different carriers that themselves look powerful and and uh, uh, and so forth and we, we'll, we'll kind of talk about some of those gods and goddesses and so forth but first now Krishna's being introduced and Krishna is doing what he's only playing indeed not only he's only playing, but he's asking questions. And that is said here. Prashrayanvanato hmm? Prichad, the omniscient Sarvatma Sarvadarshana, who sees everything, who knows everything. He sees everything because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Hmm? This is the God with the capital G. Hmm? Omnipresent and omniscient asked the question. That's just like these two things don't go together too well, it would would seem. So this really characterizes what he, the author is trying to do in this whole text. He's trying to speak about this realm where there can be intimacy with the Godhead, where the majesty and the omniscience and the omnipresence of the Godhead is somehow suppressed hmm, um, for the sake of intimacy. Um, I've said it before, it's worth repeating, that there's problems with omniscience. There's problems with omnipresence. We might think, hey, if I could be everywhere, that'd be a permanent vacation. You know, I could be everywhere at once. If I could know everything, wow, it seems desirable. I could know everything. I could be everywhere. But the problem for one who knows everything and is everywhere is not something that comes to our mind readily because we're preoccupied with the idea that'd be cool if I could know everything and I could be everywhere. But here the text is pointing out really there's a problem for the, with omniscience and omnipresence and the one who is omniscient and omnipresent expresses the problem. What does he say? He says, I know everything. I'm everywhere. There's nowhere to go and there's nothing to do. Because if you're already everywhere, there's nowhere to go. And if you know everything, there's nothing to do. Right? You already know what's going to happen. So the impetus to do anything is lost. Hmm? And so what to do? This Krishna is a very clever fellow. So I'm omniscient. I know everything. I'm everywhere. And it's boring. Hmm? And there's no one like me. Hmm? There's no one like me. I'm alone. Hmm? So when you're when you're bored, what do you do? Then you play. Hmm? 
So that is Leela. God is playing. Hmm? And, and a divine ignorance surfaces. Hmm? And the omniscient and omnipresent takes on a medium-like shape. Hmm? This is a Nyaya term from Nyaya philosophy of ancient India. The medium size. Not infinite, not finite. Medium. <laughs> and performing Leela. Hmm? This is very peculiar. So here he says, he's, he, he sees everything, he's everywhere, he knows everything. He who knows everything, who sees everything, asks the question. So he's saying that the sweetness of Krishna, who appears like us, human-like, hmm, has a background to it, and that's why it's sweet and charming. Why is it charming to hear about Krishna? Asking a question, um, asking if Radha loves him. Does Radha love me? What do you think? He asks his friend in Leela. Hmm? He has some doubt, some question. Hmm? Why, why is to hear? You see, the way that God is depicted here, it really affords us an opportunity to make a bond with the Godhead hmm? in a way that that is would be hard to find elsewhere. Because when the Godhead acts like us, we just identify with that. Hmm? That's cool. In other words, he's acting in an ordinary way. He's asking a question as if he doesn't know something. Hmm? He's playing, and he's playing very hard, very good. Hmm? And so there's a kind of a, a divine ignorance that, uh, that, that surfaces... Ignorance is bliss, so, as they say, so the possibility of, of loving hmm, is fostered. Hmm? And so we hear about his loving with his friends, like fraternal love, like parental love. Here begins with parental love, and like romantic love, and so forth. And these are all things we relate to. We have, psychologically, we, emotionally, we have these experiences, and then we're hearing of the God at having the same type of experiences, and so we hear that, and we, we it, it's, it's charming to us, and that the bond is formed. Hmm? He's like us, hmm? human-like, very much making himself accessible. It's very charming. But the reason that it's charming, and the reason that it's that it's compelling, is because he's sarvatma, hmm? he's sarvadarshana, he's all-knowing, he's all-present. But he's acting like this. That's very peculiar and very charming. And why? That that we might become attracted to him on different terms and, 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 and pursue intimacy and so forth. So therefore this majesty or Aishvarya hmm, in this Madhurya, this intimacy and so forth, these go together. Hmm? The author here walks a tightrope, tightrope so to speak, and one side is the Madhurya, the other side is the Aishvarya, the intimacy and the majesty. You could have a majestic form of God and have no uh, sweetness to it, no charm to it, so to speak. Hmm? But you cannot have an intimate form of God without this, uh, uh, without the majesty. You could have the majesty without the intimacy, but you cannot have the intimacy without the majesty. It is the background. Just like if you take a jewel and you put it on a, on a black backdrop, then it shines out that much more. So here, in the analogy, the black backdrop is the Aishvarya and the jewel, and is augmented by that. Hmm? 
So he begins the discussion. He said, he's saying that Krishna is a God with a capital G. Hmm? He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Hmm? This is his position. Hmm? And he asked a question. Hmm? Peculiar, as I say. So his omniscience and his omnipresence is being is receding to the background. And he asked the question of his father, Nanda Maharaj. In the Leela, his father's name is Nanda. Nanda, the Sanskrit verbal root that this name Nanda derives from, Nand, means bliss. So he's the child of bliss. Hmm? And so he asks, uh, he asks Nanda Baba, he, say, he says, what, um, what's going on here? Hmm? He is on the outskirts of Vrindavan, just near Mathura, and uh, he's been experiencing fraternal love with his friends and some conjugal romantic love in relation to the, the wives of the, the Brahmins from Mathura. Hmm? And then, as that Leela ends, this one begins, and what we find is that uh, he uh, encounters members of the community hmm? gathering various ingredients for a big sacrifice. Hmm? And they're all very busy about it, and very serious about that. So he, he he asks the question of his father: What's going on? What's the big sac? What's what's everybody you know busy about? This is a seven-year. He's picked it as a seven-year-old boy. So when a, if you you know some of you may have sons, maybe uh, surely, and a seven-year-old is a pretty charming age. And if a seven-year-old starts to like ask about the meaning of life, then it's, it's particularly charming. Hmm? Uh, and then you think, how will we answer him? You know, it's a big question. This is a nice thing, actually. You know, as, as an aside, children ask the questions that adults would do well to keep on asking. Hmm? Einstein once said, when he was asked about his genius, he said that he never stopped asking the questions that children ask. Children ask, "Why, Daddy?" Now forget about the why. Okay, let's just get the do- get it done and. Uh, but why this? Then you give the answer. And why that? And the why keeps going, and the why keeps going. And so the father and mother get tired and say, you know, we used to ask that too, but that just doesn't work, you know. You just got to get down to, you know, busy and do the how of things and so forth. But the why questions, these are the most important questions. These are the, the questions that humans can ask that no other species of life can ask. Why? Why am I? Purposeful questions. What is the meaning, value, not just the quantity, how to acquire shelter, food, a mate, and all these things are how questions, quantitative questions. Why is a qualitative question. Why? Why? And children ask that. Why? Why this? Why that? But we stopped, you know, trying to answer the why questions because if we really pursued them, our whole life would just change and transform, and we wouldn't be, we'd be like, what was somebody quoting Maslow the other day? We would be like the 5% of the people that are only inquiring about why, <laughs> out of balance, <laughs> so to speak. It's, it, it's thought, I suppose. So, um, <laughs> so we recede from that, or we think there are no answers. I said, but no, but, but there are. The why is coming from the self. Hmm? From the Atma, it's a it's a unit of quality and meaning. Hmm? It's asking, 
it appears to me that there's more to life than what meets the eye and the mind. What is that more? And the answer, of course, is it's you. Hmm? That's that's the, we are more than matter. Hmm? So he asks the why some why questions. He says, "What's going on here? Why are you busy? For what's this all about? Why are you collecting these ingredients? What is your purpose in mind? You seem purpose driven, if you will." And of course, he answers. His father answers. So this is a traditional sacrifice that we perform for the god Indra, who presides over the rains. We are simple people. We are coward people. We live practically in the jungle, and our li- livelihood is is, uh, is is raising cows. Hmm? And we sell our milk products. Krishna is a member of this community. This is about in the Hindu spectrum of things, if you will. This is the, the low end, most common kind of down-to-earth and simple, uneducated uh, um, lifestyle, caste, hmm? the cowherders. Hmm? Um, he's taken this position. There's good reason for that, of course. Hmm? So we'll get to that. But uh, he says, we're cowherders, so our cows depend on grasses. Grasses are dependent upon rain. So the god of rain, we, we do this sacrifice for the god of rain every year, and uh, this way we, you know, we, we live plentifully. Hmm? And so Krishna begins to question that idea. Hmm? And so when a seven-year-old boy asks why, and you answer, and he asks why more, and then he starts giving his own reasons, and it's philosophical and so forth, it becomes very, very charming. Hmm? Um, and almost, you know, you don't even listen to what he says so much, but just like, wow, that's pretty good. He's got all these philosophical thoughts at that age and so forth. So Krishna begins to answer, and he makes various suggestions as to why this shouldn't go on. He says, well, where is it from? Where do you get the idea? Is it just some tradition you do? Or he says, do you, is there, do you know the meaning behind it? Or do you just do rituals without knowing the meaning? Which is the case for most people. They enter into a ritualistic kind of a religious orientation, and they go through the motions, and they don't ask why, and and therefore the tradition never becomes upgraded and and um, and rethought in in new circumstances and so forth. And you have old moral laws that don't pertain to the times in which you live, and then it becomes then you have these big arguments or debates between theism and atheism, and and um, and the uh, Atheists are challenging these antiquated ideas and so forth and mocking them and they look rather uh, foolish and and then the, 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 the sky gods, the tooth fairies and the sky gods are dismissed as just fanciful and, and so forth. And that's what Krishna is doing here. He's seeking to dismiss a sky god. Hmm? Very interesting idea. So we're not in that debate. Hmm? The interesting thing, of course, is we'll get into this. This is the interesting thing. This this popular debate between theism and atheism, that from our perspective, they're both arguing against something that we we, have, we are not even involved in. Hmm? Um, so, um, the atheist makes the claim that you're worshiping some sky god, you know, a Zeus, a Hercules. You know, I think they, these are a little dated. These ideas, you know. 
and similarly your idea now will be dated. Well, Indra is also really a sky god. Now, one, one thing about Hinduism that's a little different uh, than some of the other traditions, like the Greek tradition or let's take the Aztec tradition where there was sun worship and so forth, is that the ideas of the gods and goddesses hmm, in Hinduism with a small g, hmm, the sky gods and goddesses, they're still around today. Hmm? The Aztecs, sun god idea, that's like done. Hmm? The Greek ideas of the gods and goddesses, your Apollos and so forth, that's also done, right? That's not around. But these gods and goddesses of Hinduism, they're still around for some reason. They are sky gods. But the idea behind them, hmm? well, that's the point. There is an idea behind them that's bigger than them. Hmm? They are a certain idea, a circle of an idea that is part of a larger circle. Whereas in Greek philosophy, let's say, or in Greek theology or, or Aztec theology or even Native American kind of theology where spirits and and so forth are, are posited and so forth, that's the whole circle. That's the whole thing. Hmm? You understand? Here in Hinduism, these gods and goddesses are, are a smaller circle inside a larger circle. And so understanding them properly leads to the larger circle. Hmm? And, and, and therefore, um, because they're part of a larger circle, they have the ideas behind them have more credibility. What are the ideas behind them? Indra is the, you know, the god of the, of, of the rains. Hmm? There's two ways in which, uh, so let me talk about it. The, the two ways, are really, in which these uh, gods and goddesses have more um, credibility and why they endure, why they are part of even some of contemporary American culture that embraces yoga, for example, and, and you have the worship of the sun god, isn't it? Hmm? Surya Namaskar, you know, how do you do that? You, you, you bend down like this and so forth and up and worship of the sun. Hmm? So we don't have worship of Apollo anymore or Zeus or something like that or or the worship, the, the Surya Namaskar, which is a way of venerating the sun god, if you will. As I say, it's very different than the than the uh, human sacrifices on the altar in, in Mexico hmm, on the part of the Aztecs to appease the sun god as it was like encountering an eclipse, I think, and they thought, uh-oh, it's going to go out. He's displeased with us, and so we put humans on the altar, and that's not going on. But the Surya Namaskar is still going on. It's quite, <laughs> quite harmless in a sense. I'll let those yoga people do their thing. You know, you know, it's okay. They're not hurting anybody anyway. They may, they may be in some illusion, but they're not hurting anybody. Hmm? No, but <laughs> uh, what, it, what that's about, of course, within Hinduism... Hmm? The smaller circle, before we get to the larger circle, the smaller circle in itself makes some sense also. What it's about is these gods and goddesses are enfolded within nature. They're part of nature. Hmm? Okay. And they represent various powers of nature hmm? that then appear, if we read the sacred texts, in, in the mind, in the psyche of the, of the practitioner as ways of thinking about conceptualizing the various powers of nature that we are dependent upon 
in terms of our doing anything. We are beings made of senses, mind and senses, and in order for our senses to be operative, we depend on powers of nature cooperating. For example, in order to see, we need light. Hmm? So the sun, as a in a macrocosmic, uh, as a microcosmic feature of nature, has a relationship with the microcosmic um, sense of sight that we have, hmm? and our sight is dependent upon the light, and so it's a life recognizing the gods and goddesses, acknowledging the powers of nature, hmm? and living in kind of a, a gratuitous way, with, with gratitude, hmm? and cultivating the idea that I am a dependent entity. The American way of thinking is, I'm independent. Do your own you know, thing and make your own trail and so forth. And there's something to be said for that on a higher level, but you can fly as high as you want in the sky of possibilities, but you have to know what you are first. If you think, I am the American, I am this body, then you're not going to go too high and too far. <laughs> That's going to come to an end for sure. But if you can understand I'm an Atma, hmm, then your possibilities to chart your course within what it means to be an Atma, what, is possi- what the possibilities are, hmm, then you can, you can do like that. But without doing that, without understanding what you are, to do your own thing is to not do your own thing, but to do the thing that your mind dictates that your senses dictate and so forth, and this is a very confining form of life. So the idea of being independent and so forth, hmm? you know, that what always comes to my mind is an old commercial of the Marlboro Man. You know, there he was, this rugged guy on a horse, and he'd ride off in the early morning or the sunset, and he'd light up a Marlboro. He was a Marlboro Man. And later now, they have this this commercial. He's up goes out there and he starts coughing <coughs> like this and he's it's an advertisement for like throat cancer or something like that you know so so much for charting your own your own course and so forth without direction without knowing who you are you could get in trouble something like that hmm. so uh, so in hinduism the idea is to cultivate a sense that i'm a i'm a dependent entity actually hmm. i'm independent of nature and that i'm I'm supernatural, I'm consciousness. But in my present condition, where I've, where I've identified with matter, I'm dependent upon nature in order to live in this context, so I should live with gratitude. And the implication of this is that if we approach nature with gratitude, with love, if you will, if we venerate nature and the powers of nature, hmm? In a, in a thoughtful way as described in Hinduism, what will be the result? The result is this. If you love someone, they will tell you all their secrets. That's a fact. Now, the modern way, in modern, the non-spiritual way of modern society is to not venerate nature, but to take her, manipulate her, tear her apart, do whatever you want with it, and get to the bottom of it and so forth, and, and nothing sacred. Hmm? Hmm. So if nature has any secrets she's holding dear... They're not going to be revealed to such an approach. And she does. She has a very big secret. Hmm? Nature has a secret. And the secret is that I have a soul and it's you. Hmm? Hmm? 
And so the idea in Hinduism, with the worship of the gods and the goddesses and so forth, is to live with gratitude and, and, and so forth. I've given an example before that if you live in a house and you press a button, you get heat, you turn a valve, you get water, you press you know, a switch, you get light and so forth, you open the mailbox, you get a bill. <laughs> so there's someone on the other end, so we should have some gratitude or we better pay the bill at least. Otherwise, the lights won't go on when you turn the switch, the heat won't go on, the water won't flow, and so forth. So, <laughs> it's a kind of love, if you will. Oh, I've got to pay my bill. <laughs> Recognizing there's someone on the other end. Hmm? So, this is the smaller circle. It's a very kind of infantile type of love. I love you because if I don't, I won't get anything. Hmm? Right? So, uh, something like that. But it is a beginning anyway, hmm? of a life of love, acknowledging the powers that be, and there are various rituals to do so, and so on and so forth. And as we approach this, where the idea is the smaller circle of the small gods and goddesses and so forth, and honoring them and trying to color my human life in consideration of a divine factor and recognizing that it's, that it's a dependent kind of, I'm a dependent entity. Hmm? It, it, that nature responds in such a way that we are we are kind of pushed in the direction of knowing about ourself in ways that nature herself cannot reveal. Hmm? She says, "You, I'm, I have a soul, and it's you, and you're actually more than me. You've been venerating me all this time, but actually, you're you're constituted something that's that's more than me. You're what gives me meaning and value. See the beauty of yourself." Hmm? Hmm? And so then we move from a religious orientation to a spiritual orientation in life. Hmm? And so the gods and goddesses, they, for these two reasons, I think, in Hinduism, they endure today a little bit more. Hmm? Um, and the ultimate, the second reason is most profound because that type of lifestyle is meant, the way it's depicted in the Hindu text, is intended to bring you to the point of understanding hmm? the limits of nature, hmm? and finding that you exceed the limits of nature. Wow, what that's wonderful. That's extraordinary, what you are. And now you come into this position that I am consciousness, I'm not matter, and I am constituted of the same thing that the capital G God is constituted of. That's very curious. Hmm? As far as the, the popular debates between theism and atheism, today, where the atheists are criticizing the sky gods and these, you know, these, these crazy ideas and so forth. We have responses. Hinduism is really not part of that debate. It's mostly a debate with Abrahamic traditions and fundamentalist orientations to them, hmm? um, um, wherein even sometimes in Christianity it's thought that the big god, the big G, is like a small g god. Like in in the Greek theology, the gods were thought to be like craftsmen, cosmic craftsmen, weave things together, the makers of the world and so forth. Hmm? When we go to the big G, as I said the other day, there's nothing to be made. God is not... God's good character is not in question because he made a world in which there's evil. Rather, he didn't make anything. Hmm? Whatever exists 
will always exist. Whatever does not exist will never exist. So the shaktis that make up the world, matter, maya shakti, and consciousness, the jiva shakti, ourselves, they're all, they have no beginning. Hmm? They are... God is the Shaktiman. It's energetic, and the energetic has energies. They're not separate. They kind of are, but they're not. Hmm? Just like fire has heat and light. Okay, that's its energy. Hmm? Its powers. Hmm? So, so there's no beginning to the world. Hmm? There's no end. You're not going to save it all. It's not a problem. Everybody liberated, then what? There'll be no souls left. No, it's not. This is like finite thinking. So God doesn't make anything. So His character is not determined by what He made, but but how He deals with what there is. Hmm? So He defers to nature and the principle of karma, which is justice. If you take, you owe. Hmm? So He's just, and at the same time, He overrides justice and shows mercy. In order for there to be mercy, there has to be justice. So He's just. And he's merciful at the same time. Hmm? And if we are charged in Hinduism with, well, you know, so you believe in the sky gods, we say, no, actually, we don't believe in them. That's the teaching. Krishna includes, concludes the Gita, and this is what, his conclusion in the Gita is what this Leela of Govardhan is all about. He says what? Sarvadharman pritya mami kam saranam braja. If you want to know me, you have to give up these sky gods. Hmm? Early in the text, he says, what about them? Alpumedasaha. Those who, who believe in the sky gods, they're less intelligent. Hmm? So that's our reply. No, we don't believe in the sky gods. Hmm? That's we're less intelligent people. Hmm? And we would say also, and you are less intelligent because... Actually, you also believe in the sky gods even as you are denouncing them because what does it mean to believe in a sky god who's enfolded within nature? The difference between the sky god, if you will, with a small g and the, and the big god with a capital G is that the sky gods are dependent upon nature and nature is dependent upon the capital G of the omnipresent, omniscient. Hmm? Big difference. So you say, oh, you believe in the sky god. We say, no, we don't believe in the sky god, but you believe in the sky god. How can an atheist believe in the sky god when he's d- d- dismissing him at the, at the same time? Because what does it mean to believe in them? Hmm? It, to believe in them means to believe that you can preserve your egoic life. That's what it's about. People in Hinduism who only worship the sky gods, if you will, hmm? what is their ideal? Their ideal is not to efface their ego, hmm? Their ideal is to acquire hmm? and to attain some idyllic realm along with my friends and my family and my dog and my cat and and, and you wonder what age are they going to be. Hmm? You know, anyway, so uh, they, they want to take everything with them. Hmm? And so the atheistic idea is kind of a pie-in-the-sky idea as well. Hmm? Hmm? It's the belief that by acquisition I can be happy. Hmm? Because that's how we conduct ourselves. We acquire. We think that by adding on materially resources, by preserving even, take it in another direction, preserving the natural resources sounds like a a progressive and good idea. 
Let's make a religion out of it. Hmm? We call it religio-environmentalism, something like that. So it's cool, it's progressive, it's liberal, it's hip, it's done with all this God stuff and, and so forth. Uh, and and I'm you know I'm a liberal, but <laughs> but uh, it can go too far. So there's your here's your your religion. It sounds pretty cool. We'll preserve the natural resources. We get all kinds of alternative technologies and so on and so forth. Replace oil and coal with sun and wind and 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 we'll count our breaths and so forth, and uh, we'll even do a little yoga and meditation and, and so forth. But for what? You want to change the technologies for what? So you can keep on doing the same same thing, basically. Extend the same... I'm going to acquire in a different way only. And I want to <laughs> ensure that the, you know, the, inquir- the acquiring possibility remains because I'm still thinking that that's how my life will become fulfilled. Hmm? I want to live on forever as I am. Hmm? But that I am is an I am American or Indian or whatever it is, and that's your egoic kind of um, conventional ego sense of self that that will not endure. Hmm? In Sanskrit it's called ahankar, means hung I car maker. It's a make. It's a made-up I. Hmm? I am American. I am Indian. I am this. That. It's a made-up I. It's a fantasy. It is a pie in the sky. Hmm? You understand what I'm saying? It's a complete fantasy. Only those who believe in such a fantasy worship the sky gods <laughs> as the be-all and end-all, something like that. You may decry them and dismiss them, but you're really only interested in the same thing as those who worship them. So what is the difference between you and them? You do can argue or you're, you're, you know, lives away. It doesn't have any bearing on what we're talking about. Hmm? We're talking about something else. So Krishna asks, why are you doing this? What's the purpose behind this in the Leela? He asks his father. Or are you just doing it? Or do, you, do you know why? And so forth. And then he quotes from the Sankhya philosophy and the Karma Mimamsa philosophy which just shows that the Bhagavatam is comprised to some extent of these other philosophies and all, wherever it fits, and so forth. And ultimately, his father is basically just charmed by his son's questions without really thinking much about the philosophical implications of them. And so, on the force of Krishna's insistence, he forgoes the worship of the sky god Indra. Hmm? Hmm? And instead, Krishna recommends the worship of the Govardhan Hill, the mountain that is full of grasses that the cows in the cowherd community are so dependent upon and so forth. And and in the context of doing this, what Krishna says to them is is that hmm, that he he said he's, he asks, you know, you should tell me why you're doing this. His father says, well, you know, you're too young, well, you know. <laughs> Kids ask the question why, as I said before. He keeps asking. Hmm? He makes the point, he says, Friends should not keep secrets from one another. Hmm? Those who love one another should not keep secrets from one another. Hmm? He's saying, now what am I picking? But speak of being your friend, I'm your son, and we're one. He, he, what he wants to say here is that I want to speak about a, a spiritual idea in which, which is classless, casteless. Hmm? Where everybody is 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 one beyond the body. We are all equal units of consciousness, hmm? and because we are consciousness rather than matter, 
and the God in his consciousness, there can be a real union. Hmm? Like, if you want to enter the fire, well, you have to be on fire, something like that. You have to be fire, otherwise you'll burn. So we want to enter into the world of consciousness. We have to be, we are conscious, but we have to realize that. So he, this is what he's speaking about. This is the kind of the thrust, if you will, of the Leela. He says that we, uh, what, what, what I'm about, what this community is, is, should be about, hmm, is a type of love of God that transcends this very superficial idea of love of, of, of God that's a bargaining kind of a thing. I'll do this if you'll give me that. Hmm? This is rejected. What else is rejected is, if I won't get anything, I won't do anything. Hmm? Kids, for example, they say, give me, give me, give me, and you, and you give them something, and then if you don't give them, they may go pout in the corner, so then I won't do anything. Hmm? This is karma, and this is gyan. Hmm? You understand? Karma means I want, I want, I want, so I'll do something if I can get it. That is Varnashram in the Indian context. Varnashram means we worship all these gods and goddesses for what? Because we want something. So we don't even really worship them. We want something. Hmm? It's a bargain. It's a business arrangement. And Gyan is, I realize, oh, whatever I get, I won't be happy. So I won't do anything. I'll just sit. Shanti, shanti. Hmm? So these are two sides of the same coin, karma and Gyan. One side is exploit the world, try to own it. The other is, well, I can't own it, so I'll know it. By know it, knowing it, I'll transcend it, and I'll sit peacefully. Hmm? They're both worldly-centered. One wants to exploit the world and take it, karma. One wants to get away from it. Hmm? Bhakti, on the other hand, is not about taking from the world. Now they're about getting away from the world. It's about bhakti about devotion. Exploitation on the one hand, renunciation on the other, and in the middle, dedication. And in dedication, there can be taking and there can be giving up. Hmm? But a path of just taking, that's not good. A path of just giving up, that's not good because you don't recognize that you have some obligation to give. You can give up. But what about giving? Hmm? So in bhakti, there's taking hmm, when it's appropriate we would take, and when appropriate, we will give up. We will take prasadam. When offered, we won't fast. There will be an offense at that time. And we give up. We will accept what is favorable for bhakti. We will take what is favorable, and what is unfavorable for bhakti, we'll give up. So it's a whole different moral system. The moral code is, if it's favorable for bhakti, I accept it. If it's unfavorable, I reject it. That's my morality. This is a Vedanta perspective, not a Varnashram perspective, moral, where the moral code becomes the sum and substance. Hmm? This is not the case. Therefore, morality can be turned on upside down. Hmm? Look at Krishna. <laughs> That's what the teaching is, something like that. So, here, in this chapter, hmm, Krishna wants to establish what he says at the end of the Gita, as I said, Sarvadharman Pritaja Mamekam Sarvambraja. Give up the sky gods hmm? Hmm? and connect with me. I am Sat, Chit, Ananda, and you are Sat, Chit, Ananda, Anu. 
you are, you exist in an enduring way, you are a luminous unit of knowing, consciousness, and your purpose is is to love. Hmm? Sat-chit-ananda. Anu means atomic in size. And I am Sat-chit-ananda in a big size. So we should get together. We are like. This is what he's saying to them. We, we, we are all, there's no secrets here in Braj. Krishna is one of the members of Braj. Hmm? They have a sense of mamata, minus. He's ours. He belongs to us. Hmm? This is what he wants to, wants to promote, this idea. You can never have that relationship with the gods and goddesses. They're always up there, different from you, hmm? if you will. Hmm? So anyway, the Leela begins, and Namaraj agrees, yes, let's forego this, this, this yagya. He's just charmed by his son. And Krishna proposes a different type of um, uh, ceremony, which is the very place itself, most significantly represented by the mountain that's in the center, the Govardhan. Go means cow and Vardhana means to increase. That which has given so much livelihood to the cows and their cowherd people. Hmm? To venerate the hill. And so if in this chapter, a big festival is arranged for uh, worshipping the hill and all kinds of food is brought. It looks like animism, if you will. Hmm? And then then the omniscient side, omnipresent side of this childlike, playful Krishna comes to the fore. He shows himself to be that hill, non-different than that space, that they're in a trans-spatial, trans-temporal realm, and it is of the nature of Satchit Ananda, of his own nature. Hmm? There's no separateness there. Hmm? Even while there's individuality, <laughs> there's no separateness. Hmm? I am the hill. Arajya Bhagavan Brajeshatanayasta Dhamma Vrindavanam. He says, I am Vrindavan itself. Hmm? He shows this. It's very it's compelling to them. And a huge festival is conducted. Hmm? It's all about eating and offering things. It's a harvest festival and, and so forth. And then there are the consequences. Then the sky god reacts. That comes in the next chapter. Hmm? And he's further uh, put to rest, if you will. We'll come to that on our next discussion. Sriman Bhagavan Gauranga ki jai. Sri Radha Govinda ki jai. Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai. Gaur Premanande. What's the time? Um, 20 minutes to one. Perfect timing. Any question? <laughs> yes. It seems like the... There's a there's a, a mixing of rasas for Krishna when he uh, when he tells everybody like I'm the form of the hill they're thinking Krishna's an extraordinary boy but they're not thinking that Krishna's God and he kind of reveals himself as he reveals himself in a sense as God if he's going to take on say I'm I'm Gopal Hill that's exceptional. Mm-hmm. Well, he 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 um, he he shows that. And they think that that's very interesting. <laughs> that our friend is God. That's what other people say about him. Hmm? They said, so maybe it's true. 
but the way they think is that's just an extra feature. Just like, let's say a mother has a son and the son becomes the president. Hmm? And he comes elected, he gives his election speeches, and I want to call my mother out here and I want to thank her for her support. And she runs up and says, Barak, or, you know, whatever, you know. She's got some names for him, you know, who knows what she calls him, you know, or, or whatever. Barry. Hmm. Uh, and he's like turning different colors and stuff like that. So the fact that he's the president has just been revealed. She knows it, but it's just like, my son is the president. That hmm? it's, it's, it's the, the, he's my son, that takes precedent. That's more prominent. The fact that he's the president... That's just an extra feature, and that's cool, and it's great. I'm glad you're successful, and you, which is what you wanted it to be, and and so forth. And and but all the people are thinking he's the president, he's the president, he's the president, he's the president. Mm-hmm. So so they see sometimes, from time to time, in the, throughout the Leela, you'll find that Krishna shows himself as God, and they and so they reflect on that. They go, hmm, we're having an intimate relationship. It's been told by others, yogis and stuff, that he's God and stuff, and so I guess he is. Well, that's cool. Whatever. <laughs> so, uh, something like that. It doesn't change their relationship with him. That's the power of their love. It's a secondary thing. Hmm? We said that from omniscience he plays and becomes enters a divine ignorance, but that divine ignorance constitutes a greater knowing than omniscience because it's the knowing that becomes possible in loving. In loving, you know what to do. Hmm? You know what to do. You have an essential kind of knowing. Knowing has no value unto itself. Knowing is only as valuable as it, as it informs action by which we become satisfied. Hmm? So, that help? Yeah. Okay, yes. Um, you're using two words. Um, trans- Temporal, transpatial. I made them up, yeah. <laughs> Transpatial, and what's the other one? Transtemporal. Transtemporal. Okay. Um, now, how is that in relation to the grace of God? Mm-hmm. In other words, how, do, how, how, how does like the grace of God become within, on us, in us? Mm-hmm. And this, in these other two words, are they similar? I, I, I'm having a hard time relating to the words. The idea is that we, we live in a realm that um, in which all things are confined by space and time, right? Every material thing is um, contained within space. And it has a time. The sun will burn out. So it has a time, right? It has a form, means that it's confined within space. So we live in time and space, so to speak. Krishna's subjective world of Leela is beyond time. It's eternal. It's like consciousness itself. Has, if consciousness is not matter, if it has no biological um, makeup, hmm? When the biological organism dies, it, it doesn't affect consciousness. It's just like if you unscrew a light bulb, well, sure, there won't be any light there, but the not electricity went away, right? So when the biological complex meets its demise, consciousness continues to endure because it's not biological. 
not being biological, not being psychological, it's not confined by time and space. So it has no beginning, it has no end, right? So it's transtemporal, it transcends time. Hmm? Still, there's movement in that realm, so there's time of a transcendental nature for the sake of sequence. But the time doesn't bring about origins or demise. Hmm? So every aspect of the Leela is always ever existing. Hmm? So transtemporal and transpatial means the form of Krishna and the forms of his associates there. They're not confined by, by time or by, or by, by space. Hmm? Krishna's form is all pervasive, but it's appearing in, in a mystical vision under the influence of Yoga Maya, Sarup Shakti of Krishna, that Bhakti is constituted of, this super Shakti of Krishna. It, it, it appears to be within time and space, but it's not. Hmm? And so, with the ingress of Bhakti, Bhakti kind of is, a, is the energy, if you will, that makes that realm transtemporal, transpatial realm go round. Hmm? Just like Brahman is, is a form of God that's all pervasive, right? Hmm? Non-differentiated. Um, but if you add the Sarup Shakti of Bhakti, then it starts to move. That's Krishna. He's everywhere, but he's moving. How can you be everywhere and move? That's very peculiar. That's the influence of Bhakti, the Sarup Shakti. So when that makes ingress into your life in a prominent way, and you move from bhakti in practice to bhakti in ecstasy, hmm? then you start to enter into the trans-temporal and trans-spatial realm. Does that help? Yeah. 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 And it's like being, in, with relation to the world, it's like being in the world, but not being of the world. Hmm? Hmm? Okay, so, very good. Nice to sit with you all. Thank you for your questions. And we'll stop there, and then it'll be... Artik, Kirtan, in the temple. Please go there now. And as soon as the Artik is over, we could, if we could ask Mitra Singh to lead the Artik, Kirtan, Kirtan, then there'll be Prashad for everybody. Sri Gajraj Gobran Ki Jai. Puri Vaishnav Guru Paramparaki Jai. Or Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai. Or Premanandi.